Welcome to Make Time, a project of craftschools.us. My name is Stuart Kestenbaum. In this series of podcasts, I'll speak with creative makers and thinkers, people who work with materials in compelling and ingenious ways. Craftschools.us is a consortium of five leading craft programs in the United States, Penland, Aramont, Peters Valley, Haystack, and Pilchuck. Each school features residential programs that focus on materials in the creative process. We believe that working in a supportive community with time to focus without interruption can be a catalyst for significant creative growth. Today I'm speaking with Sonia Clark. Sonia's head of the Craft and Material Studies program at Virginia Commonwealth University. She's been the recipient of many awards, including a United States Artist Fellowship and a Paula Krasner Foundation grant. And while she has had formal academic training and frequently references a history of art and textiles in her work, she also uses textiles as a way to tell more personal stories. Sonia was born in Washington, D.C. Her father was a psychiatrist from Trinidad, and her mother was a nurse from Jamaica. She writes, I gained an appreciation for craft and the value of the handmade, primarily from my maternal grandmother, who was a professional tailor. Many of my family members taught me the value of a well-told story, and so it is that I value the stories held in objects. I guess I want to start with your, your grandmother. She was your first teacher. She was an incredible, incredible woman. All of us called her chummy because she was everybody's chum, sort of a British uh-huh. way of saying friend. And um, what she did was, I was a very quiet child. Hard to imagine, I know, Stu. She, she kind of bribed me in a way. She knew that I loved to hear her stories, not only of my other cousins, but um, of her time growing up in Jamaica. And she would say, I'll tell you a story if you sit and stitch with me. So those two things really got um, connected to one another. The idea of embroidery, working with textiles, stitching. We were making doll clothes together. Um, and, and she would tell me stories of home and stories of family, which was really quite lovely. And so how old were you when you first started? I must have been quite small, uh, maybe three or four. Um, Uh But then she died when I was 10. So it's just in that span of time that she would have been visiting us. What a great teacher to have for your first teacher. And she taught you how to uh, thread a needle. I know you've talked about that particular technique that you teach to everybody, but can you describe to me what that is, that foolproof technique? Yeah, it's sort of this funny thing. You know, we often will say that we thread a needle. And my grandmother would say, actually, you needle the thread. So instead of holding a thread really, um, really long and trying to get it into the eye of the needle, she would hold the thread very, very short. So it was almost like a, a hair beginning to grow, you know, like the bristle of a man's beard or something, you know, just stubble. Right. And then you place the needle over it, and it's a foolproof method. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, everybody who's listening to this will now have that foolproof method. It's, it's great. And you had an undergraduate degree, and then you went back to school to get a, a BFA, I think, and then, a, then to get a master's. So was there a, like a shift where you knew you wanted to pursue it as a, a career, or what led you to that? My parents really believe strongly in education especially as immigrants, since they both immigrated um, from the Caribbean, they wanted to make sure that we got the best education that we could and sort of by any means necessary. And um, I went to the school called Sidwell Friends. 
And the arts were really encouraged at the elementary school level and even the middle school level. And then the upper school, we were all supposed to go to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. I mean, really, it was that kind of school. And so the arts became something that made you well-rounded, but certainly weren't the major focus, unfortunately. And so when I went to Amherst College, I studied psychology, but I didn't study the arts there. And then, you know, I got a degree, I got a job, I was doing all the right things. And my parents had given me a a graduation present and they sent me to West Africa. They sent me to the Ivory Coast. And there I was studying traditional crafts among the Baolay and Sanufo people there. And I just said, okay, that's it. I've got to get back to art. So (laughs) I saved all of my money from the job that I had. And I um, went back to art school with the the caveat to my parents, I just said, well, let me just try this. And if it doesn't work out, if it's not the right thing, I'll go back to school and pursue my master's and maybe my PhD in psychology. But if it does feel right, then I'll get my master's in fine arts. And that very first class, I knew that I wanted to be an artist and I'd sort of been holding my breath for a while. And the one of my first classes was with Nick Cave. So I was very privileged to have Nick as a teacher really, really early on. And he was a tough teacher. And I was in the Art Institute of Chicago where there are no grades. So it didn't matter that I had figured out how to be a good student in a sort of more scholarly, uh-huh. academic kind of setting. Art was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And so I loved that about it. The, the narrative impulse has always seemed to me very strong in your work from the early work that you did with hats and and definitely as you've moved along in terms of telling your story, other people's stories, it seems like it comes almost directly from your grandmother at the start. Right, that, that's right. I mean, I think that um, there's something so basic and so, um, I don't know, so rooted, I'd like to think in all of us about the power of a story. And then if an object can hold that story or tell a story across time, then it becomes even more valuable to us. So, you know, I think about heirlooms this way, that an heirloom holds one person's story, but it actually doesn't become an heirloom until it passes from one generation to the next. And then it becomes an even more valued object when it gets passed to the next generation, the next generation. You know, the older the heirloom, the more stories it's accumulated. And I think there was some of that impulse, too, in going to West Africa and um, trying to understand a little bit more about the African side of my heritage by being there. And I would say probably the first 10 years of my art career were really rooted in um, really in Nigeria, so West Africa, specifically among the Yoruba people, to understand how they thought about identity and to have a parallel sense of identity through those objects of the headdresses and hats that I was making for many years. And those headdresses, as you know, Stu, weren't really about fashion, but they were really about the idea of altars to one's head. And um, this Yoruba notion that your identity and your destiny, um, your head and your destiny are the same word, ori, Um, And so in the culture, there are a lot of altars that are made one's physical head, but also one's spiritual head. And so those pieces were really about that, getting back to the roots of something. And then you you went on exploring things related to to hair and black identity, uh, Abe Lincoln, uh, 
with an afro on $5 bill. I like to think, you know, I started with these headdresses and I just got closer to the scalp, right? <laughs> so I started making pieces around hair. And the pieces around hair really had to do with the way in which we have racial constructs globally, but certainly in this culture. And um, some of those racial constructs are based around the kind and quality of hair that we grow. If it's very curly, curly hair, then um, that means you belong to this category as opposed to that category, you know, that sort of thing. I've lived now in Richmond, Virginia for 10 years, and Richmond is the seat of the Confederacy, as you know. And, um, and so really thinking about African-American identity as it plays out in this historical city and uh, thinking about Abraham Lincoln and um, when Obama, our first black president, was elected, I made those $5 bill pieces by giving him an afro, so stitching, embroidering an afro on his head on a $5 bill. Um, and I sort of joke about this, but it's not quite a joke about how that's a little bit like hair as prayer, you know, it's kind of praying that maybe uh -huh. we would get Obama elected. You know, there are complex narratives that you deal with, but I think maybe in my mind, the most complex one is the, I guess, a more recent project where you were unraveling the Confederate flag, talking about kinds of heirlooms within our culture and and varied meanings with one object. When there was so much uh, discussion around the sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, um, Confederate flags came out and about and were in discussion and Lincoln's legacy. It was so much part of the air that we breathe here in Richmond, but I would say for the nation as a whole. And um, I believe it's April 9th when the um, Civil War ended. And so 150 years later, I started on April 9th, I started completely unraveling a Confederate flag and brought it down to just piles of red, white, and blue uh, Were you threads. thinking of it as an art, art piece right away? Or did you just begin to investigate that way? Or no, it was an art piece. It was an art piece right away. I mean, the thought was... You know, what does it mean to take this very contentious symbol and deconstruct it, you know, take it down mm -hmm. to its essence? And so then in these piles, it could have easily been the American flag that I deconstructed. And I realized that that there's something interesting in that, that um, the threads could be used to reconstruct an uh, American flag. But in the state of them being completely deconstructed piles, um, there they were. Maybe, maybe the symbol had actually been dismantled. So the idea of engaging community in art projects has been one of those things that makes me understand a project better. I mean, in one sense, the audience is always involved. You know, there's that, um, that idea that the artist begins the art, but the audience actually finishes it. Um, so using that same notion, I decided to take another Confederate flag. And just to be clear, these are cotton flags that are um, dyed and then pieced together. So they're stitched together. They're not printed. And um, what I did was I had a show that was coming up in, um, in May in New York, and it was a group show. And so at that show, I had the deconstructed Confederate flag called Unraveled. 
And then I decided to perform along with other people, unraveling. So I started to deconstruct a Confederate flag and then invited people at the opening to help me take it apart thread by thread. And this is, again, the action was slow and deliberate and hard and complicated. So we weren't ripping apart a flag. We were unraveling it thread by thread. So there were people who didn't even understand the way that cloth is made. I mean, we're surrounded by cloth, but they didn't actually understand, you know, warp and weft. So there was that moment of some people that I was standing shoulder to shoulder with where they would say, oh, I never, I never really even thought about cloth. And then other people would say, oh, I've never had the chance to rip a Confederate flag. And I said, we're not ripping it. We're unraveling it. And that idea of really trying to understand how a symbol got to be the symbol that it is. It's a wonderfully complex way of looking at, at history. Nothing happens overnight. Like our culture doesn't get to where it was overnight. And so in taking it apart, it's a visceral feeling for what it took to put it together in, in some way. That's what makes it really remarkable. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, it took it took a long time for us to build a confederacy. You know, it took years of enslaving people from Africa and the transatlantic slave trade route and then the forming of a nation and the integration of slavery. I mean, that America wouldn't be what it is um, without our free labor. We wouldn't be a wealthy nation, frankly. Um, and so it took a long time to build a confederacy and it is clearly taking a long time to undo um, all of that as well. We're still unraveling that flag, aren't we? Yeah, Yeah. and the thing about this project about unraveling is that I was, you know, I made it in response to the Black Lives Matter movement, not like a direct tie, but just that we were witnessing so much racial injustice um, and how um, African-American people's bodies and lives are simply not valued in the same way in this nation still. But there's a legacy in that. There's a reason why that is. And then after the unraveling project, then nine days later, there were the murders in Charleston. And then there became all this attention around the Confederate flag again. And yeah, we have a lot of work to do together. As a project, in addition to involving people directly, there's a kind of rightness to the way that you use the materials, how you conceived it, and the actual physical touch gives people the this, this sense of what's going on. I'd like to think that the unraveling is an optimistic project, but it's one that also brings up so many issues of, uh, of sorrow and suffering. But the, the Beaded Blessings initiative that you did, I think it's still traveling around and taking on a life of its own where people, uh, you worked with communities to make essentially uh, prayers. If yeah. you could talk about that a little bit, how that came about. I, I sort of call it the Beaded Prayers Project because the project started with the shared etymology of the word bead and prayer, which in the English language comes from rosary beads. So rosary beads being used as a mnemonic device for people remembering where they are in their prayer cycle. So I love that notion, just that the the history of an object became fused with its naming. Um, And then, well, all over the world, but really in, again, West Africa, this idea of making amulets that were these little packets that were stuffed either with prayers or powerful medicines, the idea of healing and protection. 
So I decided to ask people to write down their own wishes, hopes, dreams, aspirations, blessings, prayers, um, something that they wanted to be healed about, something that they needed, you know, maybe a question that they wanted to have answered or that sort of thing, um, to write them down and seal them shut so that it would be this notion of the power of secrecy. And I asked people to make one to keep for themselves and to make a twin one that would go to be part of the traveling project. Well, when... We did that project with you uh, at Haystack. Mm-hmm. The, th- the part that was so remarkable was to walk into the small gallery space where the workshop was and have all the beaded blessings from all over of uh, many varied skill levels uh, filling a room. It just gave the space a presence and the, the feeling of uh, everybody contributing to it, which I think is really a, a hallmark of a lot of, of of what you've done, like with the the hair project too, and working with with uh, women in hair salons, um, you're honoring work other people do and making your work as part of it. Is is that that seems to be a strong impulse with you? You know, there's that phrase: if you want to get there faster, do it by yourself. But if you want to get further, do it with a group. So. Um, uh-huh. The Haircraft Project was an example of that. I mean, for a long time, I was working on this premise of hairdressing being one of the primordial textile art forms. And that's something that is rooted in having Ann Wilson as a teacher at the Art Institute of Chicago. She was um, stitching with hair as thread for a long time in her artwork. And so her work is an influence, a great influence on mine. And because hair becomes this place that uh, racial identity is connected and culture is connected, I decided to go to 12 African-American hairdressers um, and ask them to do my hair. Um, But in this case, I was asking them to really use my body as their canvas. And then I gave Mm -hmm. them a canvas, an actual canvas that had been um, embroidered, might not be the right word, but stitched with silk thread. And that silk thread was like um, a flattened wig on a canvas. And then I asked them not only to do my hair, but to also style the quote unquote hair or the threads on this canvas. Because if my premise was right, that hairdressing was really, is really one of the first textile art forms, then the translation from my head to this canvas stitch with silk thread would not be a problem for them. Some of them thought I was a little crazy. You know, they thought, oh, yeah, one, another one of these artists from Virginia Commonwealth University, whatever. Um, but then yeah. as we got involved in it and they realized how seriously I take them as artists. And some of them take themselves very seriously as artists too, but others hadn't really thought of themselves that way. Um, when they saw the that we, the work was framed, it was hung professionally, you know, it was all the things that I do as an artist, I think it changed something in some of them. And then, as you know, one of the things that I wanted to do with that project was to actually bridge two audiences here in Richmond. Unfortunately, the contemporary art audience here in Richmond is is predominantly white. And and yet Richmond is a predominantly black city. So how to bridge an art form 
that you know African American hairstyling done by African Americans, um, how to bridge that to the predominantly white art audience, and so it ended up being a really fabulously um, diverse group of people who experience the Haircraft Project together. And then the project, one of the things I wanted to do was I really wanted people to investigate the work that these women had done. And so I had people in the audience um, come and vote on which they thought were the best hairstyles and which from the photographs that we had taken and, um, and which they thought were the best canvases. And then I asked Lowry Sims, who at the time was a head chief curator at the um, Museum of Arts and Design in New York. She juried. And um, I asked Alilia Bundles, who was a great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker, um, who was known for being one of the first African-American women, first women, actually, in this country to be a self-made millionaire. And she did that through hair care. So her great-granddaughter became the juror for the photographs. And, of course, you can imagine that the hairstylists were bringing their friends and their family and their other clients right. to vote for them. And um, the art community here was, you know, really voting as well. And then with Lowry and Alilia's votes um, and decisions also, it was really quite an amazing thing. Uh, it's such a challenge to bring together different communities sometimes and that you were able to do this through a making process, I think is really, really wonderful. And I'm thinking back to your millinery you're doing with the hats moving through each each transition that you're doing as as a maker, like you're just blossoming more and more. With each each thing, there's a rightness to it. And it's like each gesture leads you to another thing where you, which propels your creative process. And it's really, it's it's amazing to see from the outside. Oh, I so appreciate that, Stu. I, I also have to share with you a story about my grandmother that I, I didn't know while she was living. Um, I have an aunt who passed away last year, and she said, well, you know that Chummy started her career as a milliner, and I never knew that. So oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't know it until my aunt told me just literally two or three years ago. Um, yeah. And um, and then my aunt passed away. So imagine if I hadn't heard that story. It's like this beautiful, <laughs> the beginning of my art career is kind of the same way that my grandmother began her. Your grandmother began hers. Yeah, yeah that's great. Yeah. So you've been pretty busy now. You've had uh, a number of big exhibits. You've been traveling a lot. And uh, when it comes right down to making, there's always the studio is where it all starts. So I wondered... What's a studio day like for you? Do you get them now? And, and what are you working on? There's a piece that I made recently. Um, I was thinking about commodity, that my body uh, 150 years ago or 200 years ago would have been a commodity. And I decided to take something directly from the continent of Africa. So beginning with ebony, um, that beautiful, beautiful dark wood, which is heavy. You know, ebony is very dense and very heavy. And then taking gold coming from the Gold Coast or what is now called Ghana and measuring the distance between Richmond, um, capital of the Confederacy, and Accra, now the capital of the former Gold Coast, 
that distance is about 5,000 some miles. Forgive me for not having the exact number in front of me now, but I measured that in inches per mile and spun an 18 carat gold thread that is about 5,000 inches long um, and spun it around a spool that is made out of ebony. Now, to look at this piece, it just looks like a black spool with some gold, maybe thread on it. To make that piece, there were at least seven people involved (laughs) in making this piece Uh that is no bigger than an inch. Um, But the idea is that the piece is about many people. It's about all of the people who were forcibly migrated from Ghana to the new world, the quote unquote new world. It's about people as commodity. It's about the trade system. It's about, um, you know, it even makes reference kind of to cotton in a way, even though it's gold, you know, it makes reference to thread and that trade and all of that. So I'm hoping it will be an object that will absorb lots of stories as well. It's like the it's the opposite of your unraveling project in a way. That's right. It's it's making a kind of unity, I guess, although it's got the uh, horrible history awful history as part of it it also has seems like you you're bringing something together at the same time which is maybe healing's too strong but it it recognizes it i guess and it also strikes me that you're you're back with your grandmother in a way because you're telling stories and you're and you're working with more than one person in the studio you're uh, all learning together and working together which is really great and it comes back to the thread, you know, like the beginning of it all, even though in this case it's wire, but it, you could stitch with this wire. Um, it comes back to my grandmother and, you know, needling the thread or threading the needle. You've been listening to a conversation with Sonia Clark. Make Time is a series of podcasts supported by craftschools.us, a consortium of five leading craft programs in the United States, Penland, Aramont, Peters Valley, Haystack, and Pilchuck. Visit craftschools.us to learn more about us. This episode was produced by Lizzie Jacobs with help from Rachel London. The music is by Pogus. I'm Stuart Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.